0: Hello, this is Tommy Franks. Welcome to the Four Star Leadership Podcast, product of the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute and Museum. We're here to get a view into the lives of the legacy makers, the movers, and the shakers of today. Offer insights from the full spectrum of the leadership community. We'll talk to former four-star students and explore their leadership development path. We'll work to find out what they are about today and learn from the opportunities they've made for themselves in this world. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome you to this podcast. Remember, leaders are not born, they're developed.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Core Principles of Leadership with General Tommy Franks. I'm your host, Dr. Jill Green, and we are on episode 32. Today, our guest, we have Shannon Huffman-Polson. Shannon is the author of The Grit Factor, Courage, Resilience, and Leadership in the Most Male-Dominated Organization in the World, as well as her memoir, North of Hope. She is the founder of the Grit Institute, a leadership institute committed to the whole leader development and host of the Grit Factor podcast. Polson also teaches on the faculty of the Tuck School's Leadership and Strategic Initiative Executive Education Program. She is one of the first women to fly the Apache helicopter in the United States Army, leading line units on three separate continents. Polson combines her passion and first-hand experience in and study of leadership, grit, purpose, and story to address the needs of her clients in the face of challenge and change with world-class keynotes and executive education. After serving for a decade in the armed services, Polson earned her MBA at the Tuck School at Dartmouth and later her MFA. She went on to lead outstanding teams in the corporate world, in the medical device industry, and at Microsoft. As a community leader, Polson successfully envisioned, founded, and led the completion of a $6.5 million new library and civic center. She has been featured on The Today Show, Newsweek, Market Watch, The Financial Times, Forbes, Harvard Business Review, to just name a few. We'll be talking to Shannon about how to use your story to truly find your purpose, and then understanding and using your purpose, what she says is the bedrock to grit. Before we get started in our program, we'll have a word from one of our major sponsors, REI Oklahoma. REI Oklahoma is proud to be part of the General Tommy Frank's Leadership Institute and Museum in the production and distribution of these podcasts designed to inspire leaders and difference makers. At REI Oklahoma, we have been working with small business leaders, entrepreneurs, and people who are driven to succeed for years. Highly motivated people working to own their own businesses, live in their own homes, and make the world a better place since its beginning. REI Oklahoma has continued to identify hurdles, and deliver holistic solutions to create job growth and help neighborhoods thrive in both rural and urban communities. REI Oklahoma looks forward to visiting with you about helping your business and community grow. Visiting reiok.org or call 1-800-658-2823 to start the conversation. The Labar family is a fourth generation Oklahoma family. That may not sound like a long time, but our grandfathers were born here within the Comanche Nation before the land runs. We are the proudest sponsor of the Tommy Frank's four-star leadership podcast. We hope listeners will heed the words of these distinguished men and women who have served our country at
2: the highest levels and across all walks of life.
1: Welcome listeners. It's my pleasure to have with us today, Shannon Huffman-Polson. Shannon brings a wealth of knowledge on leadership, especially how to develop your grit and know when to use it. We're going to be speaking with her today on her book called The Grit Factor and how it coincides with our core principles of leadership at the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute. I hope our listeners will be able to get some great inspiration from Shannon today. So let's go ahead and get started and jump right in with Shannon. When you committed to ROTC at Duke, how did your story up to that point in your life influence your decision? Oh, Jill. It's so good to be here with you. Um, th- yeah, the answer to that
2: is probably a little bit windy, but I imagine that's true for most of us. I had grown up in Anchorage, Alaska. I was, for the first year and a half of my life, a an Army brat to a JAG Corps officer. And so the concept of service was something that was very important in our family. And um, We grew up going to church, making sandwiches and meals for people who didn't have enough and delivering those on Christmas Eve. And so that was the kind of thing that my family really prioritized. So I would say that concept of service was really important. Um, The concept of service to country as well was important. My dad was really, really proud of of his opportunity to serve. And so I think both of those were were key factors in making the decision. I, I ultimately applied after I arrived at Duke. And so I had a two-year Guaranteed Reserve Forces Duty Scholarship. It was a um, guaranteed um, position with the National Guard. So I was drilling with the National Guard as well for two of those years. So it was a little bit different than going in with that ROTC scholarship. And I, I kind of had never thought of myself in that space, but it was really incredible when it opened up with just an amazing cohort of cadre and also really fantastic classmates as well.
1: So when you when you get through with your college and you you've done all your training, I don't imagine you kind of went into the military thinking I'm going to be one of the first female Apache pilots. That I mean, I don't really. When I was reading, I didn't kind of take that as the goal. No, definitely not. I mean, I, I had grown because I had grown up in Alaska. Aviation had
2: always been an interest. There's a lot of, of small aviation, private aviation in Alaska because it's kind of one of the only ways to get around to a lot of the places, a lot of the state. Um, but but yeah, military aviation had not at all been what I thought that I would do. And so I, I would say that in some regards, um, you know, when you sign up and you have a commitment and I ended up, of course, going active duty instead of into the guard. And I thought I wanted to do the coolest thing I could do, the most adventurous, the most exciting. And aviation definitely seemed like that thing. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, again, you know when you're twenty one years old or eighteen years old, when you sign up for the military you you rarely have any idea what it is that you're committing to <laughs> yeah
1: so. so in your book you you talk a lot about yourself, but you also interview some very um influential pioneers um women in the military that did a lot of the first in you know several different fields and so um in those similar to you, there was, they all had, um, you know, they were, they were the first, you know, or one of among the first. And, and in that situation, um, I think what kind of sets you and those um, females apart is, you know, the adversity that you faced, there was probably a lot of challenges. And um, a lot of times that you probably just wanted to throw your hands up and say, enough is enough. So what was it in you that was similar with those other females that you talked about that, you know, how did you, what was it inside of you that just kept you going?
2: Yeah, Jill, that's a great question. Um, and, And I'm glad that you brought this up, because I think just to back into a little bit into the grit factor, the book itself, it's the grit factor, courage, resilience, and leadership in the most male-dominated organization in the world, right? And I think we'd, we'd all agree that the military certainly fits that bill. Though there's many others that, that come fairly close. Um, and you know, I started to do the work on the grit factor when a young lieutenant reached out to me on an online officer mentorship program and asked if I would mentor her as she began the same journey that I had taken a number of years ago down at Fort Rucker. And I, which is now another name. (laughs) Sorry, I know I I know it is Fort Rucker. And um, and I said, of course. But then I thought, gosh, it's been a while since you know I was in uniform. I went through business school. I've been in the corporate world. Um, And so, how can I scale the information that I offer to this young leader? And if I do that work, then which will be a lot of work, then how can I scale the people to whom this knowledge is available? And that was really the genesis of what became the Grip Factor. I was aware of having a particularly um, unique story in some regards. And so I wanted to bring in other stories as well to inform. So it wasn't just one person's perspective. It was many people's perspective. And then once I had many voices and I had dozens and dozens of leaders in the vanguards of their fields, then I could go back and do the secondary research and say, OK, now what how does this make sense relative to the research? And then what kind of a framework? Can I offer to up-and-coming leaders, to transitioning leaders, to experienced leaders who are are um, maybe re-examining how it is that they work in a very rapidly changing world? And and what came out of that was the grit factor, which of course lines up with the grit triad. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But um, but to back into your question again, that idea of bringing a cohort of exceptional leaders who all experienced what I is called the double crucible, and that's a term that was coined by Deborah Rhodes, who's a Stanford law professor, late Stanford law professor, really facing the incredible demands of a job, in addition to sometimes facing the incredible demands of working in an environment which sometimes was actively resistant or at the very least was not always supportive. And so so where did everybody get that grit? Um, I think the million-dollar question is, is grit innate or is it something that you develop? And I think the answer to that is usually both. Although, as you know from reading the book, we all came in with stories that were as varied as the people themselves, right? Some people came in through OCS, some through the Academy, some through ROTC. um, Mm -hmm. And, and every one of them came in with, with very different backgrounds. Some were sporty, some were not sporty. Some, one of them, my, my friend now Karen Brash was called herself a Texas sorority girl. So all different types of people coming in to this incredibly intense environment. And, And I think what I would say to that is that all of us do have grit innate to to each one of us, no matter who we are. It's not just military pilots and big mountain climbers. It's every single one of us. And when you're put in the position to find that grit, that's when you have the opportunity to really bring it out. At the same time, you can also develop grit. And that was one of the ideas behind the grit factor is offering that to the leaders, both in and out of the military today, whether they are a man or a woman.
1: So, when you speak on grit, what exactly is it, and how do you develop it? <laughs>
2: That's a good question. So, yeah, grit came out of, of every single conversation. It's a term that I grew up with up in Alaska with my dad, who pushed us very hard in everything that we did as well. And, uh, and I have defined grit as a dogged determination in the face of difficult circumstances. It's the not very sexy stuff most of the time, Right. And uh, and there's another very, very uh, well-known researcher, Angela Duckworth, who has done research around grit as well. And she will call it passion and perseverance towards a long-term goal. And of course, that is also correct. She's the, she's the social scientist. But I think that doggedness and that determination sometimes is necessary when you don't always see that long-term goal. And we knew that in COVID when the horizons became very murky, right, and unclear. And so when I talk about grit to my clients, to big companies and organizations around the world now, we really look at it as that dogged determination, but it's not this discreet thing you pull off of the shelf, right for mile 23 of the marathon, but it's very helpful there as well. We really think of grit as part of this holistic part of our character, and I, I use the grit triad to really frame that idea of a holistic concept where we have commit, learn and launch, aligned with owning our past, a deep engagement in the present, and then looking towards the future with that groundedness and with that engagement. And of course, in each one of those three pieces, we can go a lot deeper.
1: So you talk about the, the grit, it, it comes from your story. And, you know, there's a lot of us who, you know, have had a lot of adversity in our story yes. and ups and downs. And a lot of it is just not very pretty. Yes. But when speaking of grit, it's that it's how we handle those situations. And we're learning from them. That's actually building our grit on how we're Um, you know, handling future events in our lives. Absolutely, Jill. I think that is the first chapter of The Grit Factor because
2: that's part of that commit phase. Chapter one and chapter two are the absolutely critical core work that many of us don't take enough time to do. And it's necessary for every single one of us because we really are acting out of our sense of story. The neuroscience is really clear on this. All of the research is really clear on this. And The reality is, as well, all of us have faced adversity at this stage in our lives, if you're as old as I am, and and maybe you are, and and actually, quite frankly, all of us after the last few years, right? And the question is, do you you allow yourself to be a victim of that, or do you redefine – and it takes a lot of work, and you may, in fact, be – not have chosen the things that have happened. None of us would have chosen a lot of the events of the last three years. And most of us have other things as well that would qualify. So what do you do with that experience? That's the question. And I really think of it as both this opportunity, but also the responsibility to shape that raw material that we've been given into the direction that we want to go. And you can see examples of it all through the grit factor. I know General Frank certainly can share those stories and and many others as well, that It really is about taking that raw material, deciding how you're going to shape it, how you're going to use it to best
1: contribute to the world,
2: because that's what the world needs from each one of us.
1: Exactly. So I'm sure throughout your career, you've come across leaders who just really didn't have that grit. And so what is the difference and what separates, you know, great leaders with grit from those that just have just don't have it? Well, and, and the concept of leadership, of course, is
2: more more complex than, than just the idea of grit. And I know you, you know that and you talk about this all the time. So I, I, I really think of the kind of the top three things that a leader has to do is to set a compelling and audacious vision. They've got to set that vision and they've got to execute on it. And that execution is twofold. One of the biggest pieces of that is really the communication piece. And that's a back and forth thing. It's not a It's not just directive. It's back and forth and it's relational. And then it's taking care of your people. So those are the pieces that really are what strategy execution is all about when it comes down to where the rubber hits the road or where the aircraft takes off on the tarmac. (laughs) Uh, And So so grit is certainly part of every piece of that. um, But alone, a person with grit um, isn't necessarily going to be a good leader. But for those leaders who have that triad of what's really, really important as a leader, Having grit is, of course, a critical component, and I really think of grit and leadership as completely inseparable because, as a leader, you're often alone, you're often making hard decisions you're often uh forced to to choose things that that may go against kind of what the the popular sentiment is at the time and and that's just really, really hard stuff and and there's other times when you just have to push through um you know The difference in many cases is simply the choice. I mean, it's simply the choice to do that original work, to own and know your own story, to own and know your own personal purpose, and then connect that to the organizational purpose. And then to do the rest of the work that's around that communication piece, that relational piece, and that taking care of your people piece. And, and, um, and, and it is a choice. It's a choice that we make. I will also say that I have seen equally leaders make the mistake of thinking that grit is all about just gutting, gutting through, right? Just sucking it up and pushing through no matter what, what the cost. And the reality is that cost is great to both them and to all of the people who work for them. And unfortunately, I saw several examples of this when I was serving in the military. One of the things that I wish that I had written in The Grit Factor, uh, and it certainly needs to be understood, is that grit is critical to leadership. It's critical to our execution. It's critical to our success. And yet... It is not a sustainable operating mode. It's not intended to be the average of how it is that you show up every day. And so while you need to develop and be able to employ grit, you also need to be able to rest and you need to be able to ensure your people are developing their grit and that your people have an opportunity to rest.
1: And so that balance is a really critical piece that a lot of leaders miss out on. Very interesting. So um when I was reading through um and you talk about um caring quite a bit and you know how important that is and you know being a leader and um but at your first lieutenant pinning um you talked about your battalion commander and what his words that he spoke to you to that on that day can you kind of Yeah explain to us what he said today that day and how it you know has resonated with you Yeah absolutely this was a uh, then lieutenant colonel and i believe he retired
2: as a major general but uh, John McDonald and i am so grateful for his leadership when i was a lieutenant i had really exceptional leadership both up and down so my platoon sergeant was amazing yeah. the battalion commander was amazing and uh, he really prioritized officer professional development and and really um I think worked to understand what it was that we needed to know and and how it is that we needed to be able to do our work and and supported that but but those are words that I share in, in nearly every keynote that I give because they're just so critically important and I both both held them to be important but also failed at times and that's where I think my greatest failures were as well um, and the words I'm so glad that you asked this question because they're so important and when he pinned on the silver bars of a first lieutenant and and your audience knows that that's sort of like your advanced learner's permit, right? Although you feel very important at the time. Uh, And it is very important, right? It is very important. Uh, But he said, the only good use of any increased power that you will ever have is the increased responsibility to take care of your people. And I always repeat that twice, right? The only good use of any increased power you will ever have as a leader is the increased responsibility to take care of your people. And I learned from him that leadership was a sacred trust. It's a sacred trust with the lives and the well-being of all of the people that are around you, not just the people that work directly for you. And that's true in and out of uniform. And I think that's one of the reasons that I was able to be successful moving on into the business world as well, was understanding that it's about taking care of your people first and foremost. Nothing else matters if you haven't done that one thing.
1: Yeah, so I mean and I was always taught um that, you know, your the people are your most treasured asset, you know, no matter what. Um so in um General Franks in his book, he kinda talks about um a caring leader when even clear back when he was in Vietnam, um, they had come under ambush and um it was, you know, really chaotic and he had heard his um lieutenant or commander one ab- above him used a call sign to call in for air support and it wasn't coming it wasn't coming and so he felt like he, there would be no out so he used his commander's call sign and so once you know the it, the air support came in and you know here comes you know the lead commander and the generals and their you know jeeps and Humvees, and wanted to know who authorized that. And you know he just knew that he was going to get courted off and court-martialed. And you know, but his his commander stepped up and yeah. said, "I gave him permission. I did that." Yes. And um, and he talks about that. That was really the first time he understood what it meant for you know a leader to care about you know their people and he was like you know i it could have ended my career then and you know you know oh. just made history go in a different direction but it was because he had a caring Um, commander that stepped up and, you know, took the discipline that was really duly his.
2: Yes. no, that's a great, I mean, it's such a great story and such a great example. And I will say the, the greatest joys that I have had at various points, leading teams in and out of uniform was the opportunity to take care of people in a way that was both unexpected and maybe even outside of the regulations, right? But making it work because it was about taking care of people and doing the right thing. And those are by far the most important things that I was able to do. And, you know, I, I later heard from someone actually at Microsoft and there was a, a contractor that was working for us. And so she was given very little time off, but um, she ended up having some really scary health stuff happening. And I ended up letting her go many more times than the contract would have allowed to to various appointments. And And the, the young woman who was working for me, for whom she was attached or assigned, reached out and said, you know, that, that literally saved her life because you gave her that extra time. She, she would have had to quit her job, but she was not able to do uh, and and be able to still make ends meet. And because she was under contract and able to go to these appointments it literally identified a cancer, was able to then take care. And so, you know, we have this chance to literally in, in and out of uniform, make a difference of life and death and certainly a life of meaning for, for everybody around us. And that's such
1: an incredible honor. And one, one not to be taken lightly. Exactly. So... With that, so can you think of two examples, you know, in your life where you had a caring, you know, compassionate leader and what that experience meant to you?
2: Yes. Well, and I'm going to give one that's out of uniform. I think you likely have listeners. Most certainly. Yes. Out of uniform. Yeah. This is a particularly um, amazing example and a difficult, a slightly difficult story to tell. But My first book is not The Grit Factor. My first book is called North of Hope, A Daughter's Arctic Journey. And it follows a trip that I took a year after my father and stepmother were killed in uh, Arctic, Alaska by a grizzly bear. And I went up and followed their same trip up along the same river up in the northeast corner of Arctic, Alaska. And um, so to back up from that, I was working at Microsoft at the time. I'd been working there for about six months. This was A couple of years out of business school. And um, I was working in finance, which is absolutely not the right fit for me. I find I'm, (laughs) but I was, I was doing, I was doing a pretty good job, but I wasn't exceptional. And I had a boss who was a director at the time and he was from Spain. He was from France, but had lived in Spain. Anyway, but he was very close to his father. And so he had had a chance to meet my father when he had come through Redmond, Washington to visit. And so I was down in Portland with my brother on a June morning when I had the phone call that told me that my father and stepmother had been killed. And um, as I was driving north to Seattle, I called my boss and let him know I wasn't coming to work on Monday. And, um, And he said, he said, listen, uh, if you need a week and then you want to come back to work, that's great. He said, if you need three months, then great. You do whatever you need and take any time you want. You have a blank check and your job is waiting for you when you get back. And that's, there's no policy for that, right? There was no policy for that. He, he had to call up to the VP and have that approved and all that. But um, but I, and, and it was something where I had had you know, both members of a household had died. And so I had to to help to clear out the house and I had to manage the funeral and I had to then sell the house and and do all of those things that unfortunately, probably people in your audience have have also had to do. And it's a really hard task. And and so I wasn't back to work for two to three months. And when I did come back to work, the general manager to whom my director reported two levels up. I had realized that finance wasn't the right, really, place for me to contribute my best to Microsoft, and so put me in another position, which was leading a team and an international project. This great opportunity to really lead and 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 to craft something of value, which is much was a much better fit for for who I was and how I could contribute. And both of those pieces, both the reaction that said, "You take whatever time you need." And this job will be here when you get back. He actually took me out to dinner in Bellevue before I headed up to Alaska. And the idea that, or that understanding that, Hey, you know what? This isn't the best place for her to really excel. So let's, let's give her an opportunity to really, really hit it out of the park. Both of those pieces were acts of incredible kindness at and unbelievably difficult time and, uh, I, you know, I haven't heard of that many examples like that, but I am unbelievably grateful that um, and, and really very blessed that I was working for the person that I was working. His name was Mark Regera. And I'm so grateful for Mark's leadership and his willingness
1: to take a risk. That is amazing because, I mean, if you think about it, Microsoft has hundreds of thousands of applicants that, I mean, you you could have been so easily just replaced oh, and absolutely. they would have just, you know, moved on with their daily, you know. Work exactly, exactly. So that is amazing. It was,
2: uh, it was pretty spectacular. And I, I, you know, again, that both at Microsoft and in the military, it was not as nearly as dramatic as what Mark was able to do for me. But I was grateful when I had a chance to, you know, support a young soldier whose grandmother had died. And our regulations didn't actually permit someone to leave internationally because we were in Korea to visit his grandmother. And, um, and both, you know, my warrant officers, my soldiers, our whole company really supported rallying around finding a way to get him to the airport to get him back to the states and because that was who he had grown up with but the regulations didn't understand that right and so it's just times when you have to do what's right and um what's right isn't always the regulations but you there's a little bit of making sure that you take care of things that um so nobody gets in trouble but it's also just taking care of people and it turns out that when you take care of people they take care of the mission and that's just how it's just how it works
1: yeah, so we had an individual in the museum yesterday and we we have a medal of honor display and um they were he was talking about, you know, what courageous acts, you know, you know, have to come about to um receive a medal of honor. And they were like cuz they were talking and many of those acts are way against regulation like they would never expect, you know, you know any individual to to do the things that some of our soldiers do out on the battlefield and he was like you know that is it's just those people that go above and beyond to help other people and that's those are the kind of people that get the medal of honor they're the ones that are brave enough to go against the grain yes and it really is
2: yes it's important i mean a plan is something you deviate from right and plans don't exactly. contact, all those things that all of us know, uh, but you do have to start with it. And then you say, Hey, what is the right thing to do here? And the right thing to do, um, occasionally means coloring outside of the lines actually maybe even often does.
1: Let's pause for just a moment for a word from one of our generous sponsors. Hello, this is Dr. Jill Green with the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute and Museum. I would like to tell you about one of our partner sponsors, Justin Krieger. He has worked as an independent insurance agent at Krieger Insurance Agency in his hometown of Hobart, Oklahoma, since 1999. Justin is honored to help with our annual Celebration of Freedom event and has served on the Board of Directors for the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute and Museum for many years. He is a fifth-generation farmer and rancher in Kiowa County, where cattle, crops, and even insurance is sold with a handshake. Give him a call at 580-726-3076 or come by the office and speak with Justin or Kathy Langford about your insurance needs. Krieger Insurance is thankful for their loyal customers and friends who have supported them through the years and look forward to earning your business as well. Justin feels honored to live in such a great country, and he is proud to be a sponsor of the Core Principles of Leadership podcasts. Please enjoy the rest of this podcast experience brought to you by your friends at Krieger Insurance Agency now let 's get back to this great episode. yeah, so um another uh, principle that you talked about in your book is listening, um, and that matches up with one of our core principles in our communication aspect of of leading yes and so at our last four star we had eric maddox um speak to our students and he is an an army interrogator that has been credited with um getting the intelligence that was um able to um find and capture saddam hussein yes so um he was amazing to speak with and um, our students were so impressed with him but he he changed the way that our students really thought about listening. So yes. um, he explained that he was green; he never, you know, interrogated a, you know a detainee before, and you know he just kind of, you know, you learn so much in training, but then you know you get into the real world, and it's never quite the same of what you've learned. So yes. he just kind of went with what he knew and um all the interrogators before him were like you're never going to be able to crack this person and you know just and so he would just go in and he left all his bias about these are mean you know hateful people he left that all at the door and he just went in and he listened he listened to their stories he listened to them talk about their parents and little by little they began to trust him and then they began to open up and, um, and it was really interesting, but you go further. Once you say you listen, you know, once you ask your question, you're going to listen, but then you pause. Yes. Why is that pause so important? Oh gosh. And it's so hard and it's so important. Yeah. <laughs> so you ask, you listen,
2: and you pause, right? That's the, that's the framework for active listening. And, um, and I will just say it's something that I'm going to be working on my whole life. Uh, it's not something I do well, or many of us who are so execution-oriented do well. Uh, but it is something that the importance of listening, and this was so surprising to me when I was doing the research for The Grit Factor, it wouldn't have come up if I had just written my own story, because I wasn't smart enough to recognize it. But in interviewing these other leaders, general officers from across the services, you know, aviators from World War II to the present, and and many, many more, every senior leader brought listening up as one of the most strategic and important leadership skills. And so I learned a lot from this process myself. But the ask, the listen, and the pause, the pause, which can be anywhere from, you know, 10 seconds to 10 hours to 10 days, uh, really depending on how difficult it is what it, that you're hearing. Like if you're hearing something that's really difficult feedback for you or really unexpected, what you don't want to do and most of us do this just naturally is to rush to judgment on what's just been said, what the person has just said. You don't want to rush to an answer or to a solution, which is what many of us do again, who have been in operations or been in charge of things. So that pause allows you to really let that information kind of percolate a little bit, kind of, kind of soak in. And, uh, and, and again, just like you were explaining that the interrogator put his judgment at the door. You've got to kind of put your judgment aside, that natural tendency to react immediately and and really consider it in the light of other information that you might have, in the light of maybe the the shared goals that you have. And, And it really, oftentimes, if it's difficult enough to hear, you may say, you know, thanks for sharing that. I hadn't expected to hear that. And I'd love to think about that for a while and then circle back with you. And then make absolutely certain that you do because there's a lot of studies around this. And when you say that and you don't circle back, the results are very poor. But when you do circle back and say, you know, I've been thinking about this and and then start to have that conversation and ask questions and ask follow up questions, there's an incredible richness of communication that happens. Number one, but number two, there may be solutions that you're able to, to reach by having suspended judgment in the first place. And so that pause again can be, can be relatively short but it should typically be longer than you're comfortable with just to be absolutely sure that you are moving past that point of immediate reaction to a place of careful consideration.
1: Mm-hmm. Very. Th- yeah. That's just so, I, I think that if we could all learn to really pause, I think that that would, you know, there's just so many rash and harsh judgments and, you know, you know, you always hear people say, I, you know, I did that in the, you know, just a reaction and, um, yes. or, and I was explaining to the students at four star, I'm really bad about saying something and then being like, Oh, that didn't come out the way I wanted it to sound. Yes. So that, that pause is <laughs> something I need to practice as well. Well, having teenagers at home, I will tell you, uh, I struggle with this daily. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So our four-star students, we have a mixture of um, high school students that are in junior ROTC and then we have students that are just great leaders within their community and their schools that really have no connection to the military. So um, so our young leaders who don't have a connection to the military and a military background, um, military members, they're successful and Because they're resilient. They have to really know how to um, they have to learn to be optimistic because a lot of times in their their work, it's very, you know, it's grave and dangerous. And so Mm -hmm. they have to be able to be optimistic and, you know, learn to control the variables that are controllable you know, don't linger on those ones that, you know, there's certain aspects in the world that you just have no control over. Yes. So you can't linger on that. So, um, but the military, and you talk about the battle mind. Mm -hmm. So to civilians, what does that mean? And why is it important?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, this falls within the constructs of the mindset piece of what it is that um, we're considering. And in the grit triad, that again, that commit phase is owning your past, right that's your story and your purpose. That next phase is learn, and that's building your team that's active listening, and then it's mindset and you know I've been doing a lot more work in mindset even since the book has been published because there's a lot of really important things to both learn and put into practice um, but one of them that we do talk about in the book is and this relates to uh, to the question I had as well is is this idea of measured optimism. And, you know, the Stockdale Paradox is one that many of your listeners will be familiar with. But this is Admiral Stockdale flying low over the trees, shot down in Vietnam in Hanoi Hilton for seven and a half years. He had his legs broken several times. He was tortured, you know, almost a dozen times. He was in solitary confinement for half of that time. And when they released him, they said, what's the difference? What's the difference between those who lived and those who died? And he said, Well, it's easy. You know, the optimist died. Now well, that's we're gonna follow up on this in just a moment. He said, the optimists, and by by optimist, what he meant were the what we would now call a Pollyanna, right? Somebody who says, Oh, well, surely we'll be released by Easter, and Easter comes and goes, and nothing changes, and then they die of a broken heart, or surely the war will be over by September, and September comes and goes, and they die of a broken heart. And he said, Here's the lesson, and this is what This is what measured optimism is all about. And this is a circle that surrounds the grit triad, right? That surrounds that commit, learn, and launch. That circle that surrounds it says that you can never, ever lose faith, that you will ultimately prevail in the end, grounded or balanced with the brutal realities of what you face in the present. So it's not being a Pollyanna. It's not pretending that the challenges don't exist, but it is being absolutely certain that you will meet the objective. You may not know the exact way you'll meet the objective. You will, may in fact have to, and in fact you'll likely have to change course at one or more times, but you're absolutely determined that you will ultimately get there. And that is the mindset of, of of measured optimism. I would say grounded optimism, but aviators don't like the word grounded. So, <laughs> so it's really about that measured optimism. And that's something that every one of us has to have. It's It's critical to even move forward into the grit triad itself. Before you start to redefine your story, you've got to define it with that kind of a mindset that says, I am going to succeed. Now, how do I take this raw material of my life and shape it so that I will succeed, so I can contribute? my absolute best self for a better world, right? And that is, you must go into that with that mindset. And the best thing about that mindset, it's a choice. It's not something you're born with. It's not something that's given to you. It's something that you choose each and every single day. And that power of agency is an incredible thing, really an incredible thing. And I think it's something that we need to emphasize more and more because every one of us has the opportunity to make that choice every day and when things are tough every hour and every moment of those same days.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I would think that, you know, once you, you know, really find out how to grasp that it's I mean, it's, it's got to be, you know, resonating and just, you know, life altering. So, um, so, and then being resilient with that, um, and this kind of follows up is you have you talk about being able to um self-regulate. So what exactly does that mean? Wow. and this is also
2: hard, right? This goes back to uh, in part the not reacting and and not but not just not reacting to what you hear, just not simply reacting to what happens. And there is this uh quote that's often attributed to Viktor Frankl. I think we're not entirely sure where it actually originated, although that's a great source to to give attribution in many ways. Um, which is that there's a space between stimulus and response, right? And our opportunity is to decide what we're going to do in that space between that stimulus, that thing that happens, and our response to it. And that response could be something that affects us internally, or it could be something that we do externally. And so that self-regulation are the various practices that we can put into place, and there are many of them. And most of them are relatively simple if they're practiced with intention, and they're done consistently that can help us with that self-regulation. So some of the things that we talk about are gratitude journaling, right? And I, I almost laugh when I say this, like you probably have seen this on the cover of Oprah, but it doesn't matter. It's that important. And it's that effective for every one of us to get up every morning. And you'll talk to now CEOs and the, these all these guys that are, you know have these... Uh, that pro podcast, whatever they are, there and and they're writing down the things that they're grateful for every single day. So you wake up and you say, "What are the three things I'm most grateful for right now, and why?" If you could just take three minutes, right, and write it down, and then before you go to bed, say, "What are the three things I'm most grateful for," and write it down. So that's one thing. Another thing are breathing exercises. There's a lot of good that can be done with breathing exercises, and that's just it's literally regulating our, our physiology. So it's both mental and physical, and as anybody who's been in this space for more than a minute knows, our our mental well-being and our physical well-being is absolutely linked. And so when we regulate ourselves physiologically, we are also regulating ourselves or learning to regulate ourselves emotionally and mentally. And so there's several different breathing exercises that we go through in part in the grip factor as well. And some of those will be known by those who have gone through the Army's Master Resilience Training Program, too. So there's there's a number of different ways. Spiritual practice, however it is that you define that, is also something that helps to support self-regulation. And so all of those are things that are really, um, again, it, we each have agency to decide to take them on. But we also have that responsibility to decide to take them on. And uh, And it is an important part of being in this world today, I think.
1: Yeah, so... Um, in the last part of the resilience um that you're speaking of in the book, and um you portrayed it as did all those amazing women that you spoke about in the book, and it was staying focused over the long term so um you know in our world that we're we're just so used to instant gratification, we want things now, 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 and if it doesn't happen, then we just we throw up our hands and we we just Forget that one. We're going to move on to the next. Yes. So how is that, you know, how do you define and really learn, you know, to stay the
2: course? Yeah, this this goes back to agency as well, but it's something that you have to... um... You really have to be aware of uh, and and tune yourself to that awareness. I would recommend uh, the work of Cal Newport in this particular area. He does really excellent work around that, especially because you have some young people there and there are so many distractions. Um, You know, in our family, uh, and this may not be something that everyone's comfortable with, but our, our children don't have cell phones because the science on it is really clear. They're they're too distracting for a young mind and our frontal cortex is not completely formed frontal lobe until we're 25 years old. And so we're just simply not equipped. I mean, even adults are not equipped to deal with the distraction of, of what a cell phone offers. Um, they also don't have social media accounts, right? And you can decide how it is you're going to engage with that. And I think for many of us who are adults, we have to make that decision on how we engage with these many distractions in a way that allows us to keep doing really important work. So for me, that's meant winnowing down that time significantly that I spend, making sure there's still some engagement, but that it's limited, uh, time limited and and time scheduled as well. So it's really, I think, putting some practices into place that allow us to focus, understanding that the world is not set up to support your focus. The, The world is competing for your attention. It's part of our capitalist economy. It's part of how technology works. But you contributing your best self requires you to be able to focus. And so I would strongly recommend for anybody who is doing this work, read Cal Newport's book called Deep Work. Um, Put those parameters in place that limit your ability to be distracted by technology. While we're on this podcast, for example, I have my my computer turned to do not disturb. Well, you can have your computer turned to do not disturb most of the time, right? Unless you have an hour where you're going to spend doing emails and doing some other things, but you, you block that hour. So you're not just on there constantly responding to things because Cal Newport explains the research shows that once your brain pops up out of that deep work, you can't get, just get back down there. It's not something you can pop in and out of. And so he speaks about, actually to high school students as well who are preparing for college as well as the rest of us. And he says, "Listen, you've got to set those parameters on how it is that you allow yourself to be interrupted." I'll say, as a, a parent, uh, it's very difficult because your kids—oh, you yeah. yes—that <laughs> are not expected. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, uh, but um, but I, you do have to block that time and manage those interruptions. And if you don't do it, it it's almost impossible to stay focused.
1: So, in in part of um, resilience, um, and we we try to you know. Let our, you know, our young leaders know that they're going to come up against leaders or team members that maybe don't have the same, you know, values or focus that they do. And, and um, you know, it can be very lonely when you're in that situation. So how do you recommend when students are in that particular, that kind of situation Um, how do they, you know, find their resilience to, you know, keep going? Such a good question because
2: that happens all the time. And relationships are where the most difficult things happen for sure. It's not it's not in the execution of strategy or the operations, right? That that gets hard and gnarly sometimes, but not nearly as difficult as relationships. Yeah, I would say um I would start with going back to the second part of the commit phase. And that second part is a really deep dive into purpose. I actually have this as part of both my Going for Grit course at the Grit Institute, but also an entire course that blows it out into Paths to Purpose because it's that important. And when you reconnect in difficult times, whatever is causing those difficult times, to your purpose, that gives you increased ability to focus and increased ability to perform and increased ability to do what needs to be done to stay on track. So connecting to purpose is the is the first thing. The second thing is, is I would I'd suggest to folks to 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 decide, and again, this goes back to agency and a decision, and this is hard to do because, gosh, it's, it's just hard in the moment, and it's hard if there's difficult people around you, to try to adopt a curious mind and say, hmm, I wonder why this person is like this, or if I can't change this person, because most of us can't change people, right? Um, you you say, what could I learn from this person that I don't want to do? I've heard from many people about how they have been de-mentored, right? So they've worked for somebody who was a terrible leader. And I say, what do I learn from this person that I don't want to do, right? That I want to make sure I don't do. Or how can I learn from this poor leadership to become a better leader in another way, can amplify something that I'm working on? And so take that, that posture of curiosity, and ask yourself the question how can this challenging thing make me better and uh, i think both of those are great opportunities to um, to start to move past a frustrating situation and and know too that it's just part of it right it's part of the experience you're not going to have the best battalion commander and the best platoon sergeant all the time. I had the worst platoon sergeant after I had the best platoon sergeant, right? I mean that happens. Luckily, I was trained by the best, and so. Uh, but but then you work within that, and it, yeah, it's tough. But um, but you take the posture of curiosity, then you make the decisions about what needs to happen, and uh, and and move forward. So, but keep yourself focused on the goal and focused on your
1: purpose, and that that will help keep you on track. Well, in in that purpose, when you really dig deep, that's really what your your grit is coming from is your purpose. And um, in those difficult times is when your grit really comes to the forefront and helps you through. Just like you said at the beginning, you know, your grit is not always on display. It's, you know, when you're down in the trenches and at your lowest is, you know, really when you you really need to dig deep and, you know, use your grit to, to come out on the other side. Yes.
2: So. And, and and at the same time, I would say don't allow grit to substitute for necessary action. So if there's a conversation that you need to have, you don't put it aside just because you're saying, well, I'm being gritty. Or if, there, if, or if you're being treated very badly or abused, there's never an excuse for that. You're not supposed to just deal with that. You're supposed to move get help and get outside of those situations. So there are exceptions to this for sure. Um I think that just takes a thoughtful thoughtful careful perspective and ideally some help from a mentor as well if things are really difficult.
1: Yeah, so and you talk about the importance of, you know, a mentor in your in your circle and, you know, having that circle that is there to be supportive and, you know, have your back. That And that, you know, that's really important when you're, you know, young is, you know, deciding who is going to be in your circle. Yes. And, you know, connecting your circle with your values. Yes. And so I think that that's really important. So, um, so you talk about the, also the importance of being yourself. So, and I think that that is so important in today's time. You, you, You talked about, you know, social media before and, you know, We always laugh about, you know, there's Facebook Jill and then there's the real Jill and, you know, things like that. And um, everyone tries to portray themselves as, you know, happier or, you know, prettier or thinner or, you know, more successful than they really are. But at the end of the day, you're never going to be as happy as you are until you really come to the gut reality I am who I am and this is this is me. So and you find you talk about the importance of that. Yes.
2: Yeah, you know I and I it's something that I realized later that that I didn't do well when I was in the military. So as one of the first women to fly the Apache, right? I came into 120 male combat pilots in the 229th Attack Aviation Regiment and I have my hair Cut super short, and I was like i'm going to give them nothing that they can complain about, right, so I made sure I was exceptional, I could max the p t tests i could you know th- that I was good th- that they weren't going to be able to say, Oh my gosh, you can 't even do a push up or or whatever it might be said i didn't know, but I knew that things were going to be said and um and I think I also well I, I know I also took on a persona in a in a sense that I thought was necessary to be successful, and then I was successful with that persona, and at the end of my time on active duty, I felt like I had to be this person that was not necessarily aligned with who I really was. And and that was one of the reasons that I chose to leave the military, is I felt like that's what was necessary. And, and by the way, that was my perception in my circumstance. I'm not saying that that's what anyone else told me. It's just that I was able to be a certain way, which was, you know, like you'd expect in combat aviation. And, uh, and, and I got great feedback for it. So I was like, all right, I'm being successful, but I'm not feeling like I'm being true to who I am. And uh, in in every way that was important to me. And so, so I think it's important for leaders to know now. And I also think it's very different now, right? It's been, wow, 30 years. Uh, And so well, not quite 30 years, but 30 years since I since I started, <laughs> since I began the journey. And, and so things have changed. I think we have a better understanding now that there are different types of leadership that are very valuable and in fact, important for us to be able to accomplish the mission in uniform or out of uniform. Um, but if you are in a place, and there still are many places where that isn't as open a conversation, it's important to feel confident that you're bringing your best to the table when you're authentically yourself. And that's absolutely the case. This does not mean, and I'll make a caveat for the young people here too, this does not mean that you get to walk in with purple hair to JP Morgan, right? I mean, you still have to fit within the culture of the organization or you should Right, the standards. Culture. Exactly. <laughs> right. There's yes. standards and, and that's, you, you're you not better than those standards. You You join an organization and support it. But join one that's aligned with your values and that allows you to be the person that you are because that's the only way to contribute your absolute best self. And it's a fine, hard line to walk, uh, sometimes, especially for minorities in this environment. But, um, but an important one for you to be able to be your best and contribute your best. And that's what we all need is for us to contribute our best selves for a better world.
1: Yeah. So, and that's what we, we try to teach, um, our students, you know, go in and do something that you truly enjoy, you know, don't find something because it pays a lot of money and you hate going to work every day. Your life will be mundane and it, it, you know, it will just create chaos, you know, find your purpose, just like you say, and, you know, go out and do something good with it. And so and you talk about that, as you close your book, you know, We have to, you know, find our purpose and use it for good. And um, and that's what um, exactly what we teach our students is, you know, we're going out and we we want to find the answers to the problems and, you know, be the um, exception to the people that are going out and, you know, complaining about something, but not doing anything about it. Yes. So yes. Um, and make that sure that whatever
2: you do meets the criteria of first do no harm. Because there are people that will lead you along what they call a purposeful track. Um and but if it is ever doing violence to any other human or oh person, yes, that's wrong. And so I think that's a helpful thing to say, hey, find your purpose and make sure that it meets that criteria so that it is doing good in the world without doing harm. And that that's uh important um
1: an important Yeah. To so we have a student and um, he was in our most recent class and um, he had come from Arizona and he had um, been invited to speak at the UN wow. um, for a nonprofit that he had started. And he's like 17 years old oh my and um, he's very tech smart. And so um, he had been somewhere and saw a need for um children with special needs that they weren't able to drive the little power wheels um vehicles and so he was able to rewire and refigure them to where they had hand controls instead of feet controls. Wow. And so now his nonprofit, I mean is 17 years old. His nonprofit goes around and they redo these power wheels and, you know, put them into children's hospitals and, you know, that sort of thing. But it's just that power using your, your talents and your good to make something better for someone else. And so Absolutely. that, I mean, these kids that we work with, they're just amazing. And so that's, you know, really what we're wanting to, um General Franks talks to them and Um, He talks about, you know, 9-11 and when everything finally calmed down after that day and everyone was able to take a breath. He talked to Donald Rumsfeld and um, he told him, you know, we know exactly that it was the Taliban. We know this. And Donald Rumsfeld asked him, what are you going to do about it? And um, he, you know, informed him what we're going to do about it. But that's how he closes with our students. Is what are you going to do about it? And so um, that's we're trying to, you know, create leaders that are willing to go out and, you know, make this world a better place. And I think that those kind of leaders that go out into those uncharted territories really need the grit. Yes. And uh, that you're talking about. So um, I'm so glad that we were able to have this conversation today and learn more about grit and how we get it. And But I always like to close with our um, podcast guest with the same question. So um, with the knowledge and life experience that you've had now, what is the one piece of advice that you would give 18-year-old Shannon? Mm.
2: Hmm. Yeah, you'd think that I would have been asked this before, Um, which I don't know that I have been, although I think it's a great question. Um, I would say to to, to move back to just maybe, maybe two things. I mean, I guess I would reiterate the importance of being comfortable being yourself and that yourself is not only enough, but is needed in the world to be able to do things that need to be done. That's that's important. And it's important to honor that because that's how you show up to be your best and to do your best and contribute your best self. Um, and I would also say, and I'm going to just caveat add this in because I think this is so important for some of your audience as well, is that if you have served in uniform and you're transitioning out to be out of uniform, or at some point you expect to serve in uniform, and then at some point, of course, you'll be a civilian afterwards as well, uh, know that you serve in many different ways, and it sounds like your student cohort knows this. With that example that you just gave of that wonderful uh, student at the UN and his nonprofit, but there are many ways that the world needs us to show up to make things better. And there will be resistance to change. There is always resistance to change, even when my most recent project—I worked for six years to build a new community library in our small town—and I figured nobody opposes a library. I mean, this is in the rural area, and and you get people that come out of the woodwork that you wouldn't believe, and so there's always going to be resistance to change, but you stay focused on your purpose, know that you're making a difference know that you can make a difference in uniform and out of uniform and look for those opportunities and 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 trust the journey I guess that's that's the end of that is is just trust the journey
1: trust oh, the journey that's a that's great words of wisdom so um and when you talk about being out of uniform, um, my husband, he was medically retired. And so, I mean, that that takes a lot of, um, you know, they've worn the uniform for so long. It, it takes a lot of effort and time to understand that, you know, you have other purposes in your life now and you can use your story that you, you know, that has made you who you are to um, define that new purpose in your life. So um, I really appreciate your time today. And this was a great discussion and I know our our listeners are going to love it. And again, um, if you don't have her book, The The Grit Factor, I encourage everyone to go out and get it. Um, I read it in two days and it was really amazing. And I think I've tabbed and highlighted all uh, at least half of it. Um so Fabulous. um yes, so I have learned a lot through it and there's a lot that um I'm going to share with our students and our future students. Thank you again to REI Oklahoma for making this podcast possible. For nearly 40 years, the board, staff, patrons and supporters of the nonprofit economic development REI Oklahoma have been committed to expanding Oklahoma's economic prosperity, earning the reputation of being one of the most comprehensive economic development organizations in the country. Business lines, training workshops, business consulting, and networking opportunities, as well as technical assistance and even commercial business space are made available to Oklahoma entrepreneurs and small businesses. For low and moderate income individuals and families, down payment and our closing cost assistance is offered. Learn more at reiok.org. On behalf of the Four Star Leadership with General Tommy Frank's team, I'm your host, Dr. Jill Green, and this has been the Core Principles of Leadership with General Tommy Frank's podcast. Now it's your turn, podcast listeners. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and let us know what you think of this episode and all our other episodes. Share this podcast with all the leaders and -and up-and-coming leaders in your circles. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast listening platform, and don't forget to mark your calendars the last Friday of each month for another inspiring episode. So for now, as General Franks always says, Go be feisty.